Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. My longtime favorite independent eyewear brand, Jimmy Fairley, offer the best in cool and conscious spectacles and sunglasses. For the past 10 years, they've been giving a pair of glasses to someone in need for every pair of frames ordered to support the international charity Restoring Vision. This is what they call the buy one, give one program, which you may have seen me talking about on Instagram. Restoring Vision operates in more than 130 countries around the world, working closely with local charities to ensure more people have the access they need to improve their sight. This year, the brand decided to go a step further in its conscious commitment through a new range of bioacetate frames. This is a plant-based and biodegradable material, making them sustainable and lovable. And we have a bonus round. You can also add a blue light filter to your frames, which if like me, you spend a lot of time in front of your screens, is really helpful in lowering the disruption to our circadian rhythm. The brand has four stores in London where you can get a free eye test. You can just book this online. So head to jimmyfairly.co.uk to find out more information on their conscious values and check out their collections. Thanks very much to Jimmy Fairley. Hello, welcome back to All The Small Things. I hope you're doing well. Thank you so much for being here. I am super excited for today's episode. Before we get into it, a little update from me. I'm running behind, team. It's nearly 5pm on Monday. Ideally, I like to have these intros and the edit all recorded at least a week, maybe even two weeks before. But life has really got away with me recently. I have moved out of London. I've been living in London for 10 years and I no longer live there. I'm now living in the countryside as of about three days ago. A lot has changed. A lot is changing. I am no longer surrounded by boxes. I just have one box left. Everything else is unpacked. Cows are now a daily part of my routine. I'm not mad about it. I'm kind of loving it. And I feel really excited, to be honest. I felt very ready for a change, and I'm feeling very, very good about it. Also, there's, you know, there's some things to be feel good about at the moment. England are absolutely smashing it in the Euros, which is very exciting. And I'm obsessed with Emma Raducanu at Wimbledon. I mean, I, I'm not even much of a sports person, but here we go. Here we are. This is what's really thrilling me at the moment alongside this massive move. Right, let's get into today's episode because this is a guest who I've been trying to interview for nearly a year. I'm so excited about today's episode. It's with Ashley Charles, who is also known as Dottie. Dottie is a broadcaster and writer from South London. After joining the BBC in 2014, she became the first solo female to host the BBC Radio 1 Extra Breakfast Show in 2016, leading the breakfast show to its highest ever audience and interviewing everyone from Oprah to Will Smith. She's presented TV programmes including BBC One's music show Sounds Like Friday Night and BBC Three's Story of Grime documentary series. Dottie recently landed what she's referred to as her dream job and it's very difficult for me to say. She's the lead cultural curator. Try saying that fast. 
at Apple Music and the host of Apple Music One Show, The Dotty Show, as well as a commissioning editor at Grazia. Last year, the Times lauded her as the powerful new voice of her generation. The main bulk of our conversation is about her debut book, Outraged, Why Everyone is Shouting and No One is Talking. The paperback is available now and I insist that you read it. This book is a really candid exploration of the state of outrage in our culture and how we can channel it back into the fights that matter. We discuss it at length in this episode. If you are someone who uses the internet and engages in outrage, like the majority of us, please do read this book. The link is in the show notes. I think Dottie is just getting started and I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Let's begin as we always do. I'd love to hear how you start your days and whether or not you have any rituals you like to practice each morning. Um, my alarm clock goes off, which is a four-year-old. Um, <laughs> usually, usually around 5.30, 5.45 if he's feeling generous. Um, and then it's just like this weird three hours to kill before school run, which is just an inordinate amount of time to... I think spend hanging out in the morning. That is my routine though. Every day, three, three hours of trying a kill time before the school run and, and uh, a flat white squeezing at some white. point, always a flat white. So I'm assuming being a parent has altered your mornings hugely. Do you know what it, it, it has? And it hasn't because I've, I've been used to early wake ups. I used to do a breakfast show and one thing I was really looking forward to was not having an alarm clock go off at five o'clock and almost instantly my, my son decided that that would actually be the time he'd like to wake up. So nothing's changed. <laughs> Cheers, mate. Um, <laughs> let's wind back the clocks a little bit. I'd love to hear about where you grew up and some of your strongest memories of childhood. Um, so I'm a South London girl, which freaks some people out. I don't know. People that are not from South London think that it's like Hades. Um, but I am from, I'm from South London. I grew up in, I was the second, I'm the second of four kids, uh, to my mum and dad. And I just, yeah, I remember just being in a house full of love, full of music, really musical household, which I think is why I ended up on the radio, ended up trying my hand at music as well. My parents were like, like their, their record collection was extensive and there was always something playing. And my, my actual, my early mem- my earliest memories are songs. So whenever I think back to when I was three or four, I can, I base those memories around the soundtrack of the time. So I, re- I remember hearing everything from sort of James Brown to old reggae records like Gregory Isaacs, The Carpenters. My parents loved The Carpenters. Um, love that. They would, they'd play The Carpenters a lot. So my early memories are just really old songs. I love that. And it's definitely like that makes perfect sense, you know, because not only were you a DJ on BBC Radio One Extra, still work in the music industry now with Apple, you were also a really successful MC. You collaborated with Buster Rhymes, appeared on stage alongside Missy Elliott, which is just so cool. I'd love to hear about that time um, and that, like how you got into that and also perhaps some of the lessons that you learned, which I'm assuming were really, really helpful uh, when you got into radio and television broadcasting. Yeah. So my, my mum was just great at encouraging us to be whatever we wanted to be. So 
I had a phase of, I went to like army cadets, I went to ballet, I went to drama, football, rugby, swimming, basketball. She would just be like, look, try it, see how you feel. So I had instilled in me this belief that I could do absolutely anything by the time I was like six years old. Um, So by the time I was about 10, the thing I decided I wanted to be was a rapper. (laughs) You'd think was most parents' nightmare when your child's like, I've decided that what I'm going to go into is rap. Um, But my mum was like, look, as long as, as long as you're doing your homework, as long as you, you know, are, are, are balancing this with a plan B, then go for it. And I think when you have that belief in the home, you go out into the real world and sort of nothing can break you. So I was sort of recording, I was recording over tapes when I was about 12, 13. With the double, the double, the, what, did you ever, did you ever put the little bit of sellotape so over the edge tape, of the cassette? Or, or if you can't find tape, just a little bit of tissue paper will do the same same job and Perfect. record and <laughs> record over tapes um just in case anyone needs this for, t- for today if, if anyone else listening is recording over cassette yeah if you've time traveled back to the year 1998 and you also want to record on cassette um that's what you need to do you can also do that on a vhs which i learned when i made my homemade uh, music videos you Fantastic. can yeah, you can you can record anything if you just fill in that little. I mean, times have changed. Nobody has this anymore. But that's that is what I used to do. I used to record over tapes, and I I did this for a lo- a long, long, long time. I started making mixtapes when I became a teenager, and I got offered a record deal, which suddenly just makes it really real. Wow. And it takes it away from being a hobby, which I'd always intended. I wasn't sort of out there you know, sending my, sending my recorded tapes out to the labels. But as we'll discuss, the magic of the internet is such that you can do something in this little corner of the world and the ripple effect means that it, it reaches others. And for me, that meant it reached some executives at a, a record label. And yeah, I signed a record deal, which then turned my hobby into a job, which doesn't always work I actually for me one thing I did learn is that sometimes you don't want your hobby to be your job definitely right Right. so was it during that time that you started I'm assuming you were doing lots of radio interviews and that kind of thing were you going into the studios being like oh actually like this this looks like fun like this looks like something I could definitely do or was it more like I will I'll, I'll, I'll take a job I'll become a radio DJ for a bit and I'll just do it alongside being a rapper and like the two will complement each other kind of thing. So there was, do you know what, there was, there was no real method behind it initially. I went on to One Extra as a rapper. I was a guest on Trevor Nelson's show, Absolute Legend. Um, and we would kind of, he was interviewing me, but it was kind of a conversation, a back and forth. And he played a, he put a song on. And while the song was on, he said, I don't feel like I'm interviewing you. I feel like we're co-hosting my show. Um, would you be up for co-hosting my show? And I was like, what? You're Trevor Nelson. You don't need a, you don't need a co-host. Um, and summer was coming up. It was, it was a world cup summer. And he said, why don't you come up, come along every Friday and do world cup wrap ups, which was basically me wrapping the week. It sounds, it sounds hideous now, but at the time it was quite a clever thing. So on a Friday I would go into the studio and I would wrap a roundup 
of what had happened in the tournament that week. You know, sometimes an idea just sounds good because there's a pun in there. This was yeah, one of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a pun. It will work. Um, so we did. We did World Cup wrap ups, which I have to say, it it completely turned the tide on my on on my career. And I was asked by one extra to actually become a presenter, and I it it, it all just kind of happened in a whirlwind. I went from these um, very memorable wrap ups to doing a show on a Saturday afternoon. And then they said, after after a couple of months, they said, we, we do Saturdays and Sundays, actually. We quite like the Saturday show. So I did Saturdays and Sundays for another three months. And then after being there on weekends for about five months, they said, how would you feel about Monday to Friday? And that was when I had to make a decision. Right. Um, because I was still going to the studio and I was still um, putting my music out. And Monday to Friday, as a radio host, it's it's a job. It's a career. Um, and uh, to be completely honest with you, I had started to fall out with the m- fall out of love with making music, which is why I say I'm not sure if you should always turn your hobby into a into a vocation because the pressure of okay, now I have to make a song and now I have to release it and it has to do well because this is my job started to wear on me a bit, and I really welcomed the opportunity to just be a fan of music again. When I talk about, you know, growing up in um, a household where music was always played, once you become a musician, you almost, you lose that joy of being a fan of music because now you're part of the machine, you're part of the industry and you don't get to just enjoy it anymore. And to be offered a job that would allow me to just be a fan of music again, I, I, I jumped at the chance and then, yeah, I became part of the furniture at, at BBC Radio 1 Extra. It's really wonderful hearing about your progression at One Extra and how quickly that happened, which is not a surprise to me at all because um, you you seem, you're just so, you're such a good broadcaster. It seems like, I feel like it's definitely something people can learn, but I also feel like it has, you have to have natural talent for it. And you have just such a brilliant way with words, incredible timing, um Thank and your you. way with words is not it's all I mean I, I mean it and, and and your way with words definitely is reflected in your writing um with your book um just before we get to your book I am wondering how your 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 time as as the breakfast host on one extra which you did for four years you were award-winning you broke records um what did that experience teach you about how a large audience uh, reacts to outrage and how much does social media outrage uh, influence what you spoke about on a show like that like was that when you were thinking about like content for the show would you kind of because I think this is the time where you were engaging in internet outrage more right oh yeah <laughs> yeah this so so the book which which we'll get into was born out of my own experience so this book is it, it, it attempts to help people navigate the cesspit of outrage that the internet has become. But I write that as somebody who was very much on board the outrage train myself. Um, as I, I think many people, if you really indulge in social media, it's very hard not to be carried away with that rhetoric. But on the, on the radio, what I, what I definitely realized was that there is, there's such a huge audience out there and there are key people 
who are in positions, whether you're a broadcaster, uh, whether you're a journalist, when you have access to an audience this size, you have to handle them with tremendous care. And I feel like people that peddle an outrage agenda don't realize what they are doing to the peace of of the people that that really do follow their their output. So I was really conscious of that. I always try to make my show fun. It was quite irreverent and I never mm-hmm. I didn't dive too deep into into politics or into the sort of the outrage du jour ever because I've, I I became became quite conscious of how much that impacts a large audience. Yeah, that totally that totally makes makes a lot of sense. Um, so let's talk about outraged. Why everyone is shouting and no one is talking. This was actually born out of an article you wrote for the Guardian. Is that right? Can you tell us about the kind of conception of the book? Yeah. So I was on I was on holiday actually uh, with my wife and my son who was a little baby at the time. And um, I did something you should never do on holiday, which was I, I checked my phone. And I was at the time I was still very tethered to Twitter. That is something that I've I've slowly weaned myself off of in in recent years. But at the time, which was 20, 2018, about three years ago, I was I was very very hinged to my phone. Um, so I checked Twitter in Thailand, which is just ridiculous. Um, and I saw that the internet was up in like, every tweet, like, every, or at least every other tweet was about the same thing, which was H&M had a, 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 a young black boy on their website um, wearing a hoodie that said the coolest monkey in the jungle, which many people will probably remember. Some may not, as is the nature of outrage. You know, once it's out of the headlines, you may forget. But I think a lot of people will recall this because it was a PR nightmare for H&M. And I looked at it and it was, the the, the people that were up in arms were my community, people that looked like me, right? And I, I, I recognized in that moment that outrage is sometimes an obligation. And I felt obliged to also be outraged, even though I could... I could see it as as very clumsy marketing. It didn't feel as though it was an intentional act of racism, but I had to park that because I thought, well, I'm surely it's my duty to be outraged by this because people that look like me are offended. And I realized in that moment that the weight of that of obligation is is quite scary and how it can kind of pull us in directions that we don't necessarily want to be pulled in. So I wrote this article um, about why I was just exhausted, completely exhausted by this obligation to be angered, to be um, opposed to everything that even slightly seems like an affront to my being. Look, as a black gay woman, if I was <laughs> if I was to react to everything vaguely offensive, I, I would just be offended constantly. So I wrote this article about simply how exhausted I was by outrage and how I felt that it was running away from us and losing its value. And that it was just, it was shared really widely. I think people were perhaps waiting for a a bit of an outrage intervention at that point, because I think a lot of people felt like me a bit lost at sea 
with all the outrage. It's not, it's not to say we shouldn't be outraged or we shouldn't react to things. It's just, I found myself quite lost. I didn't, I didn't know how much I needed to respond to things and how vehemently I needed to be opposed to these things. Um, and, and the article was born and I think it's, it sparked something in, in people who felt the same way because it was really widely shared. And, and, and then the book was born. You've touched on something really, really interesting. And thank you. Thank you for explaining how, how it all came about. But um, something that I was thinking about when you were talking was like how at the moment, or maybe this has been, you know, been for the past couple of years, it feels like when something big happens um, politically or, or, or like you refer to it as the outrage de jour, when something like that happens, I think people feel this pressure that if they don't, talk about it or engage with it people observing will assume that well if you haven't spoken about it you clearly don't agree with it you're out where you let's say you know you're siding with the oppressor or you're siding if you if if you're not tweeting about it you don't care about it precisely do you think that this is something yeah do you think this is something that like a lot of people are dealing with yeah i i, I write i write about this quite extensively in, in the book Outraged as well, we, we're living in an age where it's no longer enough to be, right? You have to also seem. So it's not, it's not enough to be progressive. You have to seem progressive. I need to see that that is what you stand for. We're, we're so aware of how people, of the way in which people perceive us, that we sort of, we meticulously craft these digital identities that that show us in the best possible light it's not it's not enough to be opposed to something in the real world I need to prove it to me you know go on your timeline and, and prove to me that this is what you stand for and it's you know the what, what we've heard a million times silence is violence you know and there are absolutely cases where a united voice can really steer the world towards change. We've seen it a number of times where it's very necessary for people to stand up and be counted. But I think this pressure to have an opinion on every single thing is, is really weighing heavily on people. And, and you can often see when the sentiment isn't coming from a genuine place. It's coming from a, a, a place of, of, of obligation. And I think that that is to people's undoing quite often and, and corporations as well. Totally. So let's talk about outrage as a currency, which is the term you use in the book. Yeah. Um, can you explain this to our listeners? Um, so I use the analogy of, of outrage as currency because I think it's quite an easy one to grasp and a great way to begin to visualise how we waste our outrage. People can always understand things when you, <laughs> when you explain it as money. So... For me, true, true outrage is, it's an investment, right? You, you sacrifice your time, you sacrifice your energy, you sacrifice your peace, if we're being honest. If you're being loudly um, opposed to something, if you are dedicated to a cause, then your outrage is truly an investment. And when you invest in that way, it would be quite nice to see a return, right? When you, when you look at key moments of outrage in history, be it the suffragette movement, be it 
the fight against apartheid, be it the civil rights movement. These are investments of outrage which sought to change policy, to amend laws, to reverse decisions. Your outrage should have a return on investment. And I think the issue that, that we have is that we're not really keeping an eye on our investments, which if you were doing this financially, you would never blindly throw money in stocks and shares just because other people were talking about it or just because, you know, it popped up on, on, on your timeline. But we invest our outrage in that way. We blindly throw it at issues because it's the issue that's being spoken about. We don't follow through. We don't necessarily look back uh, at that investment we made a month later to see if there was a return on the investment. It was very much just about the seeding of our outrage at that time. And I think if we care about our outrage as meticulously as we would care about an investment of, of actual currency, we will learn to pick and to choose and to be careful and to be conscious about the things that we are allowing to impact us in that way. That is so clear and thank you for putting it like that. I'm definitely gonna gonna think about that more and more. Because it happens all the time, right? Like you might you might sign a petition for something because you're like, oh, this this petition's being shared to boycott this thing or shut down this thing. And we're like, oh I'll 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 sign that. I'll sign that e-petition and share it with a couple of my friends. And then if somebody says, So what was the outcome of that petition? A few a few weeks later you might be like, I've got no idea. Didn't didn't check back on it I didn't look at whether it went into uh, into into parliament I didn't I in no way followed through on that initial initial investment and I think that's a real issue and it and it shows how much or how little we care about some of these things genuinely that we we are outraged about do you feel concerned that social media outrage is contributing to a spread of misinformation absolutely Absolutely. Again, in my book, I look I look at some instances of when people have just been duped by things that were not even accurate. And there are so many times when we respond to to headlines. I think that's a, a big issue as well. There's so much information, right? So with, with with your phone in your hand or your tablet or your laptop or whatever, wherever you consume social media. We are expected, our little brains, our tiny little brains as machines are expected to keep up with all of the world's news all of the time. You know, gone are the days when you just pick up a paper and that's what you learn for the day. In real time, you can learn about um, an atrocity in Senegal and you can hear about, you know, shenanigans in the White House and our own issues uh, in Parliament here. And you refresh and there's a new set of issues. So quite often we don't have the capacity to actually dive into each of these individual articles, to really research and to understand what is happening uh, in each corner of the globe. But we're consuming the headlines. We're consuming the, 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 the top line. Quite often that's misleading. Those lines can be misleading. They can be clickbait. And, but we form our opinion based on, on that headline or on somebody's hot take based on that headline. And before we know it, a story or, or uh, an issue has transformed because it's passed through so many filters that never actually interrogated the true story that by the time it's landed at you, you've received uh, perhaps a version 
of information that is in by no means a reflection of what actually happened. And I think as 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 big of an issue as, as misinformation is, for me, it's indicative of our, our growing inability to do our own research or to form our own opinions. I think uh, a big thing I've started to look at recently is um, influence of influences of thought. So we think of influencers as people who sell flat tummy tea or skin toner or whatever, but there are people that also influence our minds, people who we trust as opinion formers, right? So rather than forming our own belief, belief systems, we often look at these people as sort of gatekeepers of thought. You know, we ensure that our views fall in line with theirs because this person always has the great hot takes and they, they're really articulate and they form their opinions in a way that's really compelling. So I'll, I'll check what they've said about something before I decide how I feel. And we do that. We do that so much that we allow ourselves to be pulled in directions based on what other people are saying. And I think that is as much an issue as the actual misinformation itself. I completely agree with you. It also makes me think a lot about how I think a lot of us are afraid, though, of saying, you know what, I don't know. I don't know. I don't I haven't done enough research on that yet. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure in my opinion, or I'm, I'm still on the fence. I haven't quite decided. I feel like there's more pressure than ever to to have a hard to have a hard side that you, that you lie on. And yeah. often, like you say, that might be as a result of the gatekeepers, gatekeepers of thought who you're just, and you're just following their, their opinion. But how do you feel about that kind of middle ground? Like more, more people perhaps feeling okay that they might not have an opinion on something or they might be on the fence about something, even if they know loads about it. Do you know what? I, I wrote an article for Grazia last year called why it's okay to sit on the fence. Um, which looked at exactly this because I think so, so if you look at social media as a space um for communication the communication is only really heard it only really cuts through if it takes a side right so you have to be either very for something or very against something there's no real traction when you're in the middle anybody who's posted a sort of sitting on the fence, wishy-washy uh, tweet, will realise that those don't get the engagement as, 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 a, as a, a strong view. So because of that, we feel like we need to be completely for something or completely against something. That, that, that There can't be this grey area. You have to be either, it's either black or it's white. And I think the issue there is that we don't give ourselves space and time to learn or to unlearn. So we pick a side and then you're kind of bound to that, right? So even if you even if you read something which impacts your your view or you learn something new which actually means that your opinion or your take on something has evolved in some way, it's very hard to backtrack on social media. So often we find people or find ourselves sort of defending this stance that we took on as a knee jerk reaction anyway you just decided to pick a side and then and and then you are bound to that and we really I, I don't think we give ourselves enough uh, enough grace and we're not kind enough to ourselves to allow our opinions to change and say do you know what I don't know how I feel about that yet because there isn't time is there social media doesn't say have a think about that and get back to us social media is it's now it's we're all talking about this now so how do you feel what are your thoughts on this thing which is trending now it's no use coming in back and talking about it in a day or two we want to know what you think and we want to know it now and that 
that instant, uh, constantly moving uh, conversation forces us to to form a view very quickly. And it's not always the most accurate or the most accurate refre- reflection of who we are. It makes me feel quite depressed, actually, because it makes me think about how we're all kind of at the mercy of the algorithm and how yeah. much that is impacting like how we how we view our self-worth. And we were talking a little bit before we recorded. We know that there is a way to hack the algorithm, right? Like it's like you've just been talking about. It's react with a strong opinion and react fast. Yeah. And and you will probably go viral. Absolutely. And when we hold so much of our self-worth to our currency on social media you know how many retweets we get how many followers we have it does make me think oh my god how 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 long are we going to be at the mercy of this algorithm and what is it going to do to our collective health actually absolutely and it is it's all it's all currency isn't it so our outrage is currency but also our our social media platforms are our portfolios so all all of our numbers impact our stock value. And if you have any interest at all in your stock value increasing, then, you know, it's like, again, it's like the stock market, get in and get out, you know, oh, it, it's, you missed it. If you, if you didn't make a decision in that moment, you missed it. And as you say, if there is an issue, which is at the top of the agenda and you are somebody that, that values engagement and values online interaction, then you're duty bound to speak and to speak quickly. And yes, if you if you react in a way which is which is provocative, which tends to be react with outrage, then then the engagement follows. It is it's the ultimate cheat code. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm quite all or nothing when it comes to the internet. I'm, not, I, I'm either all in or I'm all out. And I take quite regular breaks. I'm, I'm offline every weekend. And then I take kind of like fortnightly, sometimes monthly breaks from the internet. But sometimes I'm just watching. And it is really, really interesting watch seeing and seeing an outrage de jour i love this term just watching it from the out uh, from the kind of periphery you must be able to ex- kind of expect and anticipate what's going to happen to them now i mean i see it all i i'm on social media a lot more than i post um and that that's just because i've i've learned how to manage my relationship with social media in a way which is really healthy for me really healthy for my family um i think in a way that that 
impacts my mental health more positively than when I was, I used to be really, really active on Twitter, like 12 to 15 posts a day, you know, and, and, and even more if like X Factor or Love Island was on, I used to really, I used to be really, really busy. Um, and as, as somebody now who kind of sits back and watches, you recognize the patterns in behavior, right? And you see when, when there is, when there's something which is the, the national conversation, you see the people that flock, they flock to that conversation and they, they can kind of, they can, they can narrate that situation for most of the day. They can really dine out on it. But when off, quite often when those people are reacting in outrage or if they're reacting in, in take the Matt Hancock situation, for example, a lot of people were reacting in a way which wasn't so much about addressing the situation, but in entertaining their followers or, you know, in having, I'm going to have a funny take or I'm going to have a hot take or I'm going to, I'm going to write an open letter to Matt Hancock, which is really common as well. When people, you write as if it's directed to the person, but actually it's very much for the benefit of your followers. I've done it. I hold my hands up. I wrote an, I wrote an open letter to, to Piers Morgan, which was not so much for Piers Morgan, but it was, I think when I look back, it was more for my audience, but the people that followed me to see how I felt about that matter. And you see so much of that now. And I, I, I now watch that with a sort of a cynical eye, especially having written the book and looked at sort of the psychological reasons why we act the way we do and, and the, the, the social or the, or the, the moral motivations that make us uh, respond in this way. It's, it's really interesting now to kind of just be a fly on the wall. Mm, I completely agree. You write in the book about how it's much easier for us to hold individuals to account and how much easier it is to us be act for, for us to be outraged by individuals and individual action um, than it is to... We, we do that much more than we hold governments to account, corporations to account, account institutions to account. Why is it so much easier to criticise the individual rather than think about the kind of the system that's in place and the system that's actually ultimately probably causing this oppression or or causing cause the root of the root cause of the issue really? I mean that there's there there are a lot of issues at play as to why we take down individuals rather than corporations. In in the book, I explain it as it's much easier to sort of pick at leaves than to cut down an cut down an entire tree. Um, but I think one of the issues is the instant gratification when you're taking down an individual. Again, the, the speed at which social media moves, and social media is a vehicle for outrage, um, more so than anything else in this age, which is why uh, my book really does look at how social media as, as a mechanic drives this thing. The instant gratification is what we're often looking for on social media. We're not looking for the slow burn. We're not looking for the thing that takes time. We want instant gratification. Policy and inst institutional failings, they can take a long time to tackle. You know, I can call a politician a knob with like a quick type, you know, it's, it's, they're what they're one click away an individual and it's it's much easier to target an individual than it is the institution to which they subscribe or to the institution that 
enables them. In the book, I talk a lot about um, Katie Hopkins. Now, Katie Hopkins uh, is a villain that has been enabled by platforms far bigger than hers. She's been enabled over time by radio stations, by TV shows, um, by entire organizations that have empowered her. But it's much easier to insult Katie Hopkins than it is to try and take down this faceless radio station, be it LBC or be it a newspaper that she writes for. And outrage is, is often about that inversion of power. We want to feel more powerful or we want to feel that one-upmanship on the thing that we oppose. People are a lot more vulnerable than corporations. It's much easier to to one-up an individual than it is a corporation. And I think that among, amongst other things are, are, are some of the reasons why we do. We go for the individual, which is a much easier target than an institution or a policy or a law, which can feel, feel really insurmountable. Mm. You write about um, virtue signaling as well, which I feel like has become a uh, a, a phrase that is really has been quite commonly used I would say definitely over the past year it's become a kind of more frequent part of our vernacular have we perhaps become cynical when it comes to virtue signaling it's a tough one virtue signaling is, is sometimes used as a bit of an insult and I, and actually I think I don't think it necessarily comes from this real premeditated place where we are setting out to deceive and to pretend that we are uh, are good people. I think, again, it's a symptom of showcase culture. You know, we we do live in that age of if I didn't see it, it didn't happen. So how, how will I know that you're a really good person that feeds the homeless if you don't take your phone out and film yourself giving that sandwich or that sausage roll to that that homeless man I how am I supposed to know that's what I feel like we've we've been convinced of this and we we tell ourselves that people care about what we think and who we are more more than they actually do I think that's one one thing that I've realized is that we think people care more than they actually do so we do we constantly feel a need to showcase and to broadcast a version of ourselves that is, is is exemplary because we feel as though we're being judged and and we want people to judge us positively so we we actively demonstrate all that is positive and again i say this is it's it's not because we are actively out there trying to deceive it's simply because we are trying to paint ourselves in the best possible light we we effectively live behind our avatars and profile pictures so much so that the version of us on social media is the version of us that people believe to be true and so if this is something that you can craft if it's something that you can manipulate and you can enhance and you can put a filter on then it's inevitable that people will signal and they will outwardly express all that they think is positive, all that they believe will show them in in, in the best possible light. And that is how virtue signaling is born. It's simply us wanting to be seen as one of the good ones. And I think that's, it's a natural desire. People want to be liked. Yeah, it makes me think maybe... 
I don't know. I think, I mean, I've had conversations with people where they've been worried that if they engage with an issue online, people will just think they're virtue signaling. And I think it, I'm, I'm almost tempted to say, well, you know, if you genuinely care about it, who cares whether or not people think you're virtue signaling? The more important thing is that you care. Exactly. But it is, it's this double-edged sword, isn't it? Again, the perception can make us overthink not posting or, as opposed to perception making us want to post. We we also have the other side, which is, oh God, if I post that, what what will people think? Or will I look like this? Or do you know what I mean? And it's 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 because we are so at mercy of social media. And as I said, we think people care so much more than they actually do. We are so we are steered and we are influenced by how we believe that is going to be seen as opposed to simply doing what we want to do. We are so, we are influenced. Even if you, even if you think you are uninfluenceable, you are influenced in ways you don't even realize because quite often you may post something and say, God, is that, how is that going to be received? Or how is this going to get many likes? Or is this a good picture of me? Do people like, is this the best picture? Should I take another picture? Will people like this one more? We're constantly preempting the reaction in social when when we when we use social media and yeah i think people need to be be comfortable more in their genuine responses if you genuinely care post if you like that picture post it we we need to we need to kind of free ourselves of the shackles of public opinion yeah definitely uh in your final chapter you write about how we need to make outrage great again writing resisting the urge is fucking badass which i love (laughs) i love that um not engaging with outrage and not posting about it is can be a badass act so i'm really interested to you touched on it earlier about how you've got to a kind of very healthy place for you and your family when it comes to your uh, the way the way you engage with social media and how much you post um so I'm interested to hear more about how the process of writing this book kind of perhaps altered um, those habits with with how you engage with the internet. Um, and because, you, you know, you were writing this book for a while, right? Like it was a, a good few years. Yeah. I wrote, I, the, the book took just over, just over two years to, to write. And wh- one thing I learned, which has been, which has been huge for me is I'm, I'm, I realize I'm quite comfortable with not having the answers, which a lot of us aren't. Um, and as I wrote, I wrote the book, not as an authority on outrage, not as a, a professor of psychology, uh, not as an expert on the inner workings of social media. I wrote this as somebody who was just seeing it unfold, was seeing us descend into a sort of dystopian world where social media was was king. And I didn't I didn't approach that book with the answers. And I realized I was really comfortable as, as, as I was writing the book, as I was researching it. I speak to so many people in this book where I kind of absorbed and learnt and unlearned things. And I think we need more of that, being comfortable with not having the answers, which means being comfortable with not necessarily having an immediate opinion and needing to go away and to discover and to learn. And one thing I realized that we we don't do enough, and I realized when I was writing this book, is we don't 
we don't interrogate our subconscious. And I, I now really try to interrogate my subconscious when I see something and I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm led towards a, a, a response or a, a knee jerk reaction. I have to ask myself, okay, why, why am I feeling this way? Is it because everybody else has said this? Am I, am I just not wanting to go against the tide? And so I'm just going to side with the, the overall view, which we often do. If a lot of people that we follow have a stance, we are inclined to take the same view. And, and I write about it as, as, as the choir effect in my book, which is it's very easy to just slip in and be an in, imperceptible voice in, in the choir. It's, it's kind of the safest place to be. And so it's where we often try to stand. It's, it's also about being comfortable with standing outside of that and saying, I haven't made up my mind yet. Oh, I don't know. Or do you know what? I, I don't massively care about this thing. People are really scared of saying that. Like, I don't, oh, I don't actually care about this thing. We feel like we have to care about every single thing that is trending. It's fine to not, like quite often I see things trending and I'm like, oh great, I don't care. And I, I can close my app and I can exist in, in the real world. We're just compelled constantly to care about what it is everyone else is talking about. And as I say, we, we're being pulled from, from one direction to the other because we are at the mercy of the national conversation all the time or what we perceive to be the national conversation because the, the world is a lot bigger than, than Twitter. Do you be honest with me? Do you wake up and go to sleep with your phone? I do. I, I, I check social media, but I, I, I feel like I'm so conscious and I'm so aware of the tricks and I'm so aware of the cheat codes and the engagement algorithms and I'm aware of people's motivations and why they share things and why they post things that I I feel as though I, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing it through slightly different eyes. I think social media is an incredible tool. It can be an incredible thing. We've seen social media get justice. We've seen social media invert the power pyramid where people who are voiceless are now amongst the most influential when it comes to steering these conversations. It has Social media has democratized routes to change. You know, there used to be these avenues that you need to, you need to follow. If you want things to change, then you've got to go through the right channels. And the, the gatekeepers of those channels are the very people that would resist that change. Social media is an incredible way to open up the conversation and to give people access on a greater level. I'm not against social media at all. I'm just very conscious of the ways in which it can be to our detriment. And the ways in which we're using it now. It's social media is still in the grand scheme of things, a new phenomenon, right? It's, it probably feels like it's been around for years, but when you look at the grand scheme of media and platforms and communications, social media is a baby. And I think there's still time. And I, I really believe that there are ways in which we will use this fascinating thing for good, I think it's it's made the world so much smaller. It's made it easier to to organize. You know, if you look at how protests were formed 
in the 50s and 60s, they took a great deal of a concerted effort, a lot of work. We've got, well, now we've got WhatsApp and we've got Twitter and we could say, meet me at Speaker's Corner at six. You know, there's, there's, there are ways that we can use this to facilitate the fight for change, but we just need to be aware of how it is to our detriment currently. Yeah, thank you so much. That feels like a really wonderful, positive way to wrap up this part of the conversation. Would you be up for a quick fire round? I'm, I'm definitely up for it. Quick fire with Dottie. Wake up early or have a lion? Have a lion, please God, just one. Breakfast, lunch or dinner? Dinner. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Twitter or Instagram? Oh, Instagram now, yeah. Facebook or WhatsApp? Oh, my 70. Um, <laughs> Facebook or WhatsApp? WhatsApp. You know what? Facebook Marketplace is literally revolutionising my life right now. <laughs> I don't know what, I, just assu- I associate Facebook with my aunts. Yeah, my mum and dad for me, yeah. <laughs> like, have you seen this thing? Yeah, two and a half years ago. <laughs> TikTok or YouTube? YouTube. Rapping or dancing? Rapping. TV or radio? Radio. Podcasts or Netflix? Oh, you're killing me. Those are my two faves. Um, Podcasts, though. Showers or baths? Showers. If you really think about a bath, you you will not have them. It's one of those things. If you really think about what was happening there. What, just the permeating in your own grit? Yeah. (laughs) But anyway, sorry, quick fire. Sunrise or sunset? Sunset. I don't want to see the sunrise. I want to be having an eye in. And finally, routine or spontaneity? Routine. It sounds nice to be spontaneous, but really, please, let's book everything ahead. I want a plan. I need a plan. Do you know what I hate? A spontaneous FaceTime. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I, I always think something's happened. Yeah. Like, we didn't. This isn't in the diary. Yeah. In fact, phone calls in general terrify me. Yeah, if just they're not text. planned. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm. Yeah, I need to know four days ahead if we're going to FaceTime. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Otherwise, I will assume that either my house is burning down or I have like a medical emergency. That or I, you know what I mean. Died. Yeah, exactly. Someone's died. Right. Okay. Um, final questions. What is your one non-negotiable daily self-care habit? Do you know what is non-negotiable? A, a double brush of the teeth, like morning and night non-negotiable I, like, I'm never too tired to go and brush my teeth before bed you know in, you know that sometimes you're like oh can I be bothered to wipe off my mascara it's never it's not negotiable to not brush your teeth again at the end of the day I don't know if that's self-care or just hygiene no that's self-care that's is yeah it? but just basic hygiene <laughs> <laughs> um is there anything you have read listened to or watched recently that you'd love to recommend um Gosh, I do you know what I am. A, I'm a TV holic. Is that a thing? I everyone's seen Mayor of Easttown already, so I don't need to say that. Time is great. Time on iPlayer. Wow. Sean Bean and what's his name? Stephen What's His Chops from This Is England. Stephen Graham is his name. It's just great storytelling. Watch that. Watch Time on BBC iPlayer. It's like three parts. Brilliant. Thank you for that recommendation. Um, If you could advise our listeners to engage without outrage in a more kind of 
monitored way on social media, what would it be? I think it's to work out what you really care about is the first thing. Um, I think we have this tendency now to try to stand for everything. So we spread ourselves so thin. Uh, we we think, oh, we're going to care about that and that, and this new thing's popped up, which I should probably care about as well. Um, it does. It doesn't make you a bad person to prioritize what you care about. It means that you're able to give your all to those issues and also preserve your peace. I'm really big on preserving my peace, um, and that is that's 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 realizing that also switching off and and having those moments where you say, no, I'm not. I'm not going to engage that is as important to your progression as a human being as the causes are to the progression of humanity. Oh, so beautiful. And finally, (laughs) what is one thing you hope your older self will have achieved? Um, I don't know. I hope that my kids talk about me the way I talk about my mom. That for me that's the most important, important thing. My mum, I lost my mum earlier this year and I realised just how much of a force she was in my life in in everything that that she did. And so my, uh, the greatest achievement for me will be for my kids to look at me with that same sort of reverence and and that same pride that I, that I look at my, still look at my mum with. Oh, that's so beautiful. What an amazing way to honour her. That Thank you for sharing oh, that with us. No, 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 that was just really beautiful. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Dottie. Thank you. This has been such a pleasure. I'm so, so freaking thrilled to have you on the show thank you thank you thank you oh lovely to speak to you and honestly thank you so much for just sharing my book and you've you've been a real a real champion of 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 the book and i really appreciate that if you enjoyed that conversation please do leave a five-star review on itunes and you can always share the episode on your instagram stories tagging me at venetia lamana and at atst podcast and you can always just share the episode direct with a friend you can whatsapp them you can text them maybe call them if you want to stop them in their tracks it's coming home Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.